Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's December 13th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by a special guest, Adam White, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School and a regular contributor to the Weekly Standard. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Charlie. It's always great to be here with you. Well, it seemed like a good uh, day uh, to get some advice of counsel, which is the uh, term that the president is uh, is invoking today, and uh, to update us on the state of the law, especially after the uh, Michael Cohen sentencing yesterday, the uh, the the deal involving the National Enquirer, and of course uh, the the president's uh, tweet storm, where basically he says, "I I've done nothing wrong." But see the slowly approach the president to the point where I think even the president's fiercest defender. Yeah, there, we're also being reminded of all the things that we don't know about this. Um, I agree that there's no smoking gun on the Russian collusion. However, I, I do think that there's a gun lying out there on the table. Who was it who said that if there's a gun hanging on the wall in the first act of the play, you know that it's going to be fired by the third act of the play? I, I think right. that's out there. But but now we we clearly have had the rolling uh, pleas and filings from uh, both uh, the Southern District of New York and by the Mueller investigation that uh, point the finger very, very directly at the president involving uh, multiple felonies. Uh, now, some people are calling these, you know, process crimes. And I want to just walk through where, where we're at here. Um, you know, what's your view? Well, let me say at the outset, um, as a, a, a lawyer, or at least a, a recovering lawyer, I don't practice anymore. I've always been a little queasy with the extent to which the president's own former lawyer is cooperating with law enforcement about the content of that legal representation. That's that for me. I'm always very, very uneasy about that. But let's set that aside. The fact is that Cohen is now cooperating with Mullen. Has co- Mueller? He has cooperated, and he's now said some astonishing things. Not just about the facts of of Cohen's uh, payments to these uh, to, to Trump's alleged mistresses. Uh, Cohen saying that he lied to Congress about uh, the state of the Trump organization's Russian plans during the campaign. Mm-hmm. Just that that line from the sentencing yesterday where Cohen said, I, I can't remember it exactly, but I'm sure it'll be seared into our minds by the time this is all done, <laughs> the dirty deeds line, right, that, that he, he, he helped the president or individual one, whatever we want to call him, uh, with, with dirty deeds. Uh, it's just not not a phrase you hear a lot. I'm guessing, no. right? You no, you hear no. no not I a, did the I did the dirty deeds. Really? No. Okay. And, and we should we should always remember, of course, these are still just allegations, right? At this point, Cohen and Mueller are aligned, and we can't take for granted the things that Cohen is saying about Trump. But of course, you don't run around admitting these things or, or confessing to such things lightly. But this one tweet, I want to get back to this tweet you had your your sort of pointing at from this morning where President Trump says, quote, I never directed Michael Cohen to break the law. He was a lawyer and he is supposed to know the law. It is called advice of counsel and a lawyer has great liability if a mistake is made. That's why they get paid. Uh, despite that, uh, many campaign finance lawyers have strongly blah, blah, blah. He goes on to say mm-hmm. that there's an necessarily crime here. That is a key tweet. Because there is questions about whether these kind of payments qualify as a violation of campaign finance laws. Are these payments that were made in support of a presidential campaign, or were these payments made in order to protect the reputation of 
private citizen Donald Trump, especially you know if he doesn't want his wife to know what he's been up to with these women. And what President Trump is doing in this tweet is laying down the groundwork for defense that he didn't actually know that these right. things were illegal. He, there's no what, what lawyers call mens rea. He didn't know what the payments were intended to accomplish, or he didn't necessarily agree with Cohen's interpretation of what the payments uh, were intended to accomplish. Because Cohen's state of mind and his understanding of the situation isn't necessarily the same as Donald Trump's, and that makes a legal difference. So you already see President Trump laying down the groundwork for that kind of defense yeah. right here on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, as you point out, you have to you know violate uh, the laws knowingly and willfully. Uh, of course, uh, we have to you know again note that we don't know what the government still has. We don't know they have a lot of evidence that the that is not necessarily public. We don't know um, what uh, you know. Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg is is going to say, and of course, you also have the the timing of all of this and the way that it was being done. The fact that it was being done surreptitiously, which which might go to that question of uh, of what he knew. But again, you you do have the Michael both Michael Cohen and the parent company of National Enquirer saying under penalty of perjury. That those payments were meant to influence the election, right? I mean, and 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 this is something that, again, is not just the Mueller investigation and his quote unquote angry Democrats. This is the Southern District of New York, which is taking a very very hard line on all of these issues, uh, including uh, what uh, Michael Cohen might have uh, you know, lying about that Moscow project in the middle of the campaign, which again at least uh, hints at. Uh, at the fact that the uh, that the Russian aspect of this is still quite alive, right? And and to be to be very clear, while we can't assume that the president knew or understood certain things the same way that that Michael Cohen did, we can't sus- willingly suspend all disbelief and sort of <laughs> pretend that 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 it's the most reasonable inference from all this is that President Trump was ignorant or blissful about any of this. Uh, I, I agree completely with that. And about what we know and what we don't know. For so long, every time there's been a filing in the Southern District of New York or from from the Mueller investigation, over and over again, you've seen the president's defenders immediately say, look what's not there. We don't see anything about this. We don't see anything about that. And that's President Trump's reaction often on Twitter, where he claims that filings exonerate them, exonerate him because they don't squarely condemn him. But what we've seen time and time again is that the end of the story is always a little bit more detailed and a little more interesting than the beginning of the story. The documents coming at the end of the Cohen proceedings are much more uh, significant than the ones that came at the beginning. And as as the Mueller investigation and other prosecutors continue to turn over the face down cards on the table to reveal the things Mm -hmm. that we don't know that they do know, uh, I think people have learned... Uh, at least reasonable people have learned to stop jumping uh, on each filing and assuming that it tells the entire story. Now that cuts in both directions, by the way, Right. Um, that the president's defenders, I think, need to be less strident in saying that if it's not in the most recent filing, then that proves it, it doesn't exist at all. And by the same token, I think President Trump's critics need need always to be careful about overreading things. We saw a little bit of that with the Cohen filings, where immediately you saw some of the president's critics say that that Cohen's characterization of the purpose of the payments squarely implicates President Trump as a or demonstrates his culpability as a matter of law. And then you saw other 
people, other I think more thoughtful critics of President Trump saying, now slow down. This doesn't prove the president's intent. We have to be careful and patient with these things. And so while at the same time we see other people calling on the Mueller investigation to, to finish as quickly as possible, either the president's defenders or the president's critics wanting this thing to wrap up as quickly as possible, I think the best thing we could all hope for is that for these prosecutions and these investigations to continue to proceed mm-hmm. as not not unbearably slow and not purposefully delayed, but these things should take their time, especially when it's not clear whether these investigations are hampering the president's work in office. He continues to travel around the world. He continues just the other day, obviously had his meeting with Schumer and Pelosi. Yeah, which I've well. always right. Well, but it's not clear that it went any worse because of the Mueller investigation. <laughs> no, right, right. I've always worried from the very beginning. I was writing about this the first month of the administration. I was always worried that investigations would hamper the administration. But now two years in, it's worth asking, has this actually been a meaningful impairment of the president's administration? Would he be operating any differently if not for the Mueller investigation? Well, and and, and that, of course, is the is the is the the reason behind this Justice Department guidance that the president cannot uh, sitting president cannot be indicted. But uh, since I have you on, I want to ask some technical questions. Okay. One, one of the things that's been floated out is the uh, statute of limitations. And if, in fact, the president was to be reelected, that he could simply ride out any of these charges, which then raises the question, is it possible to file a sealed indictment of a sitting president that would only be, in this, this is my layman's term, activated when he leaves office? Can, can you stop the clock with a sealed indictment or does that violate the Justice Department guidance? So I have to admit, this is not an area where I'm an expert. My clients. I don't think I was, anyone knows. I don't <laughs> think anyone knows the answer to that question. Well, then I'll just do what everybody else does, and I'll just make up answers, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, but just, but just, but just from my basic understanding of the law of, of of this area of law, both with respect to the presidency, specifically in criminal law in general, I have my doubts that you could file a sealed indictment against the president that doesn't open until after he is, um, after he's out of office. Because it's still an indictment that's been filed in court. It's an action by the Justice Department against the president. I think the point of the OL, the Office of Legal Counsel memos has not been that the Justice Department can begin the indictment process and then wait, sort of put everything on ice until afterwards. I think it's that the mere pow- just the power of the Justice Department to file any kind of indictment at all is simply uh, it doesn't reach the president. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that. I will uh, say, I will say, in general, in criminal law, um, statutes of limitations can be we call them told or delayed or extended, um, where the criminal defendant has taken actions to conceal his crime. Um, There are ways in which statutes of limitations can be extended, Mm -hmm. and I don't assume that those doctrines may well apply to conduct by the president. I'm just shooting from the hip, but if I were researching this, that's where I would start with. Yeah, we're get, obviously getting ahead of ourselves a little bit by talking about impeachment. But to, since I have you on, uh, the, the big question is going to be, you know, has the president committed high crimes and misdemeanors? And so before we I don't want you to answer that question because I think we're not we're not there yet. But what is high crimes and misdemeanors constitute? What does that phrase mean? Do we actually know? Well, I'm glad you asked, Charlie. The last piece I wrote for the Weekly Standard print magazine this summer sort of wade into these issues about this thicket of questions about what is the legal standard for impeachment? I mean, what is it, what do high crimes and misdemeanors really mean? 
mean? You know, what is the reach of prosecutorial discretion? And what is the reach of the pardon power? And I wrote about all three of those together because those are three areas where the Constitution doesn't have a whole lot of content. And ultimately, it falls to political actors and then finally to voters in hindsight to decide what the laws mean here. Now, on high crimes and misdemeanors, as I spell out in that article, I think it came out in, in maybe July. Um, it was called the coming constitutional crisis. Um, I said, high crimes and misdemeanors, it's not just crimes and it's not all crimes. And what I mean by that is it's, it seems well understood over two centuries that a high crime or misdemeanor might include something that's not a crime. Right. And by the same token, just because something is a crime doesn't make it a high crime and misdemeanor. Right. So, you know, speeding tickets or even, you know, stealing a Snickers bar from a 7-Eleven, that might not be a high crime and misdemeanor. By the same time, just because something the president does is unlawful or sorry, just because something he does is lawful doesn't mean it can't also be a misdemeanor or a high crime and misdemeanor. And there really is not a whole lot of content. Right. On this, we've only had a small handful of of impeachments and only a couple of presidential impeachments. Right. We had Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and then almost Richard Nixon, and that is the sum total of things we have to work with here. And I've seen uh, this is a a feature of of these debates during the Clinton years and today. You have some people arguing that this is all very legalistic. I just don't think so. I think this was intended to be a pol political process, a, a high minded legally minded political process, but one that ultimately rests on value judgments made by the Congress and then by the voters rather than by lawyers. Yeah, Gerald Ford um, had uh, famously said when he was he was in Congress that uh, basically uh, high crimes and misdemeanors meant whatever a majority of the House of Representatives said that it meant, which of course would be the most uh, extensive uh, reading of, of all of that. But it does seem, at least what I've been trying to read, and I think you're, you've got it exactly right here, is that the the founders meant to limit the impeachment grounds. They they did have specifics, you know, talking about treason, et cetera. Um, but ultimately, the the term high crimes and misdemeanors is is quite elastic. And so while the Congress cannot impeach someone for any reason whatsoever, uh, it has pretty broad political latitude to define that term. Would that be a fair reading? Yeah, and let's not be nihilists about this. I mean, when President Ford says that it means whatever Congress means, let's take him to mean that that it means what Congress decides it means. When Congress is thinking about this high-mindedly against the backdrop of the principles that informed the creation of these constitutional provisions, right? I think we'd all agree that that it should not be a high crime and misdemeanor for Congress to impeach a president just because they don't like him. Right? That's, that, right. that's what we have elections for. The problem, the real challenge in all of this, though, is that for so much of our Constitution, we've always, we always think of it in terms of checks and balances, one branch checking another. But these are the parts of government, uh, impeachment, pardons, prosecutorial discretion, and so on, where it's first and foremost a question of self-restraint. Not checks and balances restraining where, where each branch restrains the others. It's where each branch is called upon to to exercise some restraint of itself. And that is something that doesn't isn't spelled out in the Constitution. It's something that can only be informed by what we'd call the Republican virtues or the civic virtues that the framers understood. And this comes across time and time again in the Federalist Papers. These principles of self-restraint. 
restraint that the framers were counting on, both among government officials and among the people themselves, to work alongside the restraints of checks and balances to make all of this work. And I think what really worries me, and this was one of the points in my article this summer, is that it's hard to look across the political scene at our elected officials, at the media, at ourselves, and really trust that we still are the kind of political society that can exercise some sort of self-restraint instead of just constantly engaging in a war of all against all. Yeah, that uh, the, the the framers seem to have been very, very conscious of the dangers of impeachment, the hyper-partisanship that it would lead to, and that this would be reserved for only the most extreme circumstances, uh, very much a last resort. And uh, you, you do wonder whether or not we have that sense of uh, proportionality. I want to ask you about uh, the president and, you know, our, our news cycles move so fast we forget about these things. The president's uh, extraordinary back and forth with the chief justice about the quote-unquote Obama judges in a moment. But before we do that, uh, today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Calm. If you ever feel stressed or anxious, which if you listen to this podcast, undoubtedly you do. Uh, but do you have t- coping tools? Look, we're excited to partner with Calm, which is the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was even named Apple's 2017 app of the year. Calm gives you the tools you need to live a happier, healthier, and more mindful life. Just five minutes of Calm can change your whole life. If you head to calm.com slash standard, you'll get 25% off of a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of premium programs, including guided meditations on anxiety, stress, focus, relationships, including a new meditation each day called the Daily Calm. And then they have these sleep stories. And believe it or not, last night, when I was having a hard time getting to sleep for some reason, I, uh, I, I turned it on, and they have a new Matthew McConaughey sort of sleep story. They, they have very well-known folks who will read these stories, which actually, before you know it, you're, you're, you're kind of gone. Uh, so for a limited time, the Daily Standard listeners can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash standard. It includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. Get started today at calm.com slash standard. That's calm.com slash standard. All right, Adam White, um, we've seen so many extraordinary things. We use the words uh, extraordinary too much. We use the word unprecedented too much because there's so much that, uh, I don't, you know, what else would we describe them as? But the president going back and forth with the chief justice of the Supreme Court is, shall we say, at, at minimum uh, historically and legally unusual uh, the Chief Justice uh, John Roberts felt uh, compelled, apparently, uh, yeah. to push back against uh, President Bush's criticism of Obama judges. And um, John Roberts, uh, you know, again, said there, there was no such thing. And then the president, of course, uh, engaged him on Twitter. So so give me a, a sense of, of, of what happened there, why the Chief Justice would feel the need to call out the president at this particular moment and why the president would feel the need to basically push back against the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. Well, yeah, Charlie, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you asked. I've been giving a lot of thought to this. Now, first things first, by the way, um, I truly hope that the Matthew McConaughey calm story is just McConaughey soothingly saying, all right, all right, all right. That would be, a great, that'd be a great Matthew McConaughey. Uh, yeah. the, the, the president's criticizing the court is nothing new. Justices responding to that criticism, especially chief justices, that is something uh, interesting. Not totally unprecedented. Uh, there was a lot of, of, of fighting between uh, the Jefferson administration and John Marshall. 
Um, and, and Marshall would sometimes respond to his critics, sometimes anonymously. But for Roberts to stake out this claim against President Trump was truly, truly remarkable. Now, so the, some have said that the more cynical explanation is that Roberts understands that with the new uh, makeup of the court, with the addition of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh replacing, well, not so much replacing Scalia, but replacing um, uh, um Oh, gosh, who did Ka- I'm suddenly drawn a blank on who Kavanaugh... Oh, Kennedy, Justice Kennedy. Kennedy yeah, yeah. That's right, with the shift of the court, that um, that Roberts understands the court is going to be moving in a more conservative direction, and he wants to preemptively fend off critics from the left who will be saying that these are Trump judges. Mm-hmm. Right, same with the lower courts. So in some ways, it's not just John Roberts defending so-called Obama judges. It's John Roberts defending so-called Trump judges. That's the more important part of the story going forward. I think it's important to keep that in mind because today we're criticizing the president, uh, criticizing judges. Someday it'll be people from the other side of the aisle criticizing the judges that Trump appoints. Now, on this question about Trump judges and Obama judges, of course, we tend to think of federal judges and Supreme Court judges in terms of the presidents who nominated them. We all understand that Democratic presidents tend to appoint judges. Uh, or Democrat presidents and Republican presidents tend to appoint judges who differ on questions of how to interpret the Constitution, on what rights ought to be read as implicit in the more general parts of the 14th and 5th Amendments, and so on. We all understand that. And that's why judges are such an important political issue. It's why Senators McConnell and Grassley holding open the Scalia seat during the 2016 election year was Mm -hmm. so significant. So, of course, we'll use that shorthand. That said, I think Roberts is right to say that we shouldn't just reflexively denounce judges as Trump judges or Obama judges, because the judges that President Trump, Obama, Bush, everybody appoints to those courts, they don't wear jerseys on the bench with the names of the presidents that appointed them. The judges often disagree with the presidents who appointed them, uh, for better and for worse. And so while, of course, we should recognize that in general, Different presidents will appoint different kinds of judges. It's a huge mistake to try to trace that simplistically down to any given decision in a given case. And I thought it was great of Chief Justice Roberts to push back against that mindset that just bluntly treats judges as nothing more than partisan political actors. Of course, judges' decisions have huge political ramifications. Of course, they're often informed by the same values that inform our politics but they're just not crass partisan decisions. And that's what Roberts was pushing back against. I'd say John Roberts is a fascinating character to watch these days. I wrote a long piece about him for the Weekly Standard in late 2015, surveying his first 10 years on the court in terms of three questions, how he sees the federal government's role in America, how he sees the Supreme Court's role in the federal government, and how he sees the Chief Justice's role on the Supreme Court. And tracing back his old writings and speeches, his new writings and speeches, you can tell he's somebody who really does look to the long arc of history. He sometimes remarks about the fact that in in the court, the justices conference room, he can look up and see the portraits of John Marshall, the great chief justice, and John Jay, the first chief justice, and they're looking down on him as he's looking up at them. And I think he's trying to move the court forward to whatever it's going to do in extraordinary political circumstances that almost call to mind the situation that Chief Justice John Marshall found himself in at the moment when the Federalist Party died 
and suddenly he was running the Supreme Court for three decades during the Jeffersonian Republican days. So he is concerned as an institutionalist with preserving the independence and the integrity of the judiciary at a, at a time when it's really being whipsawed from both the, the left and the right. It, it puts in some, you know, since this was the most recent thing that was somewhat uh, eyebrow raising, the the uh, refusal of the court to uh, take up the uh, case involving, this is one of the multiple negatives here, um, the challenge to cutting off Planned Parenthood funding from Medicaid recipients. Uh, only three of the conservative justices wanted to take that up. Both Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh declined to side with the conservatives. Uh, what do you what do you read into that? Because there were people who said, well, you know, Kavanaugh was you know supposed to be this guy who was going to be hammering Planned Parenthood, and that was clearly they did not line up the way people expected. Yeah, I wouldn't overread this. Mm. I think there's some, I do think there's some interesting points here. One is the fact that Gorsuch went went one way, Kavanaugh went the other. A useful reminder that actually they're going to often disagree, even though they're appointed by the same judges. And also, as you note, the fact that Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh split off from the conservatives to stay with the with the progressive or liberal judges in not wanting to grant what we call cert in this case. It takes four of nine justices for the court to grant cert. And in this case, there were only three. Justice Thomas issued a blistering statement on this case, saying that the justices were effectively scared away because it involved Planned Parenthood. I don't know. I there's That's a possibility. I mean, who knows what's informing the justices, including Chief Justice Roberts or Judge Kavanaugh. But there's any number of reasons why the court decides not to take cases, even significant regulatory cases, and we shouldn't overread it. But it was a useful reminder that there's very interesting disagreements um, among the justices. Charlie, you said institutions. Can I just say a brief word about that? Sure. I don't mean to filibuster here, but no. but again, about Roberts and about the court in general, it, as I was saying, watching Roberts right now leading the court is interesting because he does think about the court in institutional terms, for better and for worse. He took a lot of heat during the uh, after the first Obamacare decision, where people said he was too he was he cared too much about the court's institutional interests and credibility than he did about the rule of law. Um, I'm not sure how I read that situation, but I'm always struck by conservatives who criticize John Roberts for thinking about the court in institutional terms. Right, the framers expected, they hoped that all parts of government would think of themselves in terms of their institution. There's a great line in Federalist 51 where James Madison is writing about the separation of powers, and ambition counteracting ambition, and he says the interests of the man must be attached to the rights of the place, meaning that we this our system presumes that a president will think of his work in terms of the presidency, members of Congress will think of themselves as members of Congress. And judges will do their work mm -hmm. as judges on their court. In today's day and age, it's hard to say that that holds up anywhere in our government. Members of Congress, most you know, mostly criticize Congress. Uh, the president, it's hard. He very rarely acts like a president. He very rarely thinks in institutional terms. I think sometimes the only two people left in Washington that really think of their work in in institutional terms are John Roberts and Mitch McConnell. They're not the two most popular people in town. Sometimes they're two of the least popular people in town. But I think there is something we can learn from the way they think about their work in terms of institutions. 
Hey, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Adam White, who is the uh, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, director of the Center for the Study of Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, and a, a regular contributor to the Weekly Standard. In fact, uh, your your piece on the coming constitutional crisis, I think, is, uh, is really must-reading. So thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>